Talkers to episode 241 of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdoin and Perry. I've never done an intro like that, and it just, you know, what, what do you think? I, I think it was pretty alienate, good. Have, alienate the listenership right from the get-go. Oh, no, I think, I think if anything, we're bringing them in. We're drawing them in by using the word motherfucker. Of course, close female family members are going to be tuning out immediately. That's true. That's true. So, ladies, I apologize for my vulgarities. We hope you'll stick around for another jam-packed episode on this particular episode, Match of the Week, Barry, we are going to the Sam Houston Coliseum, venerable Paul Bosch, the promoter. But it's not a Mid-South show. That was last week. What? This week, even though it's in Houston, Rick Flair versus Manatier. Uh, and it's a humdinger, good finish. There's a bit of a run-in at the end that does not involve the horseman, I will say. But uh, and we will discuss. I think uh, Magnum TA, one of wrestling's great what ifs. Do you not agree, Bear? Hundred percent. I think for me, when we talk about the match, I'm going to talk about the match for about five seconds. I mean, it's what you think it is, right? But at the same time, I think discussing Magnum and what would have happened with his career. And we had a hot take on this about a year, maybe a year and a half ago. And I think we were onto something, Jeff. Look, look at you, hot take. Like you're yeah, like a real I'm broadcaster. Current. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm all, I'm all hip, man. I'm hip, dude. Yeah. All right. All right, brother. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's see. That particular uh, match took place uh, June 28th, 1985, uh, sent along by a listener. And we appreciate that. Besides that, Barry. You know, a uh, friend of the show, Sean McIver, uh, posted uh, not too long ago on the old group that uh, he was going in for <laughs> a little uh, uh, oil lube and filter, which to guys of a certain age means it's time for the old colonoscopy. And so uh, Sean says, hey, you got anything uh, I can watch while I'm prepping? Because uh, we all know, Barry, uh, the colonoscopy, the worst part is to prep. And uh, you drink that disgusting uh, drink, and then uh, you're basically on the shitter for 16 hours uh, cleaning yourself out. So he says, can you send me any? Anything that I might find interesting? Well, it just so happened that very day on Prime, I was looking up uh, a movie that we're going to be, oh, by the way, we're also going to be talking about top action films of the 80s. Barry Rose's number one action film of all time, not even in the top five. It's on the list, but it's not the top five, very controversial opinion. I'm going to get to that in a second. But while I was looking that movie up, I'm doing a little search. Oh, where is it? And I see a movie called Killer Sofa. And I'm like, well, what the fuck is this? Okay. And, you know, having reviewed Velocipaster recently, Barry, I said, have I found a movie more ridiculous than Velocipaster? So I go and I look in the, uh, the, the little description of what it is. And it's basically a, uh, a sofa is possessed. This is actually, it's more of a, a lounge chair, but it's like, it's possessed by a, a diabook which is apparently uh, in Hebrew folklore, uh, and I had asked Lou and Barry about this. Neither one of them familiar. Uh, you know, obviously bad Jews. Shame on you and Lou. We're, we're uh, all we're experts on all things Jewish, right? Lou, like, <laughs> right? Like, much like, like I am all things Catholic. Of yeah, course. yeah. It's like like you see an Asian person. Where's the best Chinese restaurant in town, right? It's, How dare you be racist? How like dare that. you say this, Jeff? Lou, Lou, can we take this, Lou? <laughs> It's another example of, you know, just people, you know, <laughs> taking shots at the Jews. So uh, anyway, so I said, are you guys, are you familiar with this? And neither one of them had heard it. Uh, you know, I was thinking, who is a very observant Jew that we know? Howard Baum? <laughs> no. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I don't know if we're going to have to go deep into the uh, the well to uh, find someone who's familiar with Hebrew folklore. But the Diabook is a uh, 
uh, a spirit, a ghost, if you will, that possesses certain, you, know, you would think they'd uh, possess a, uh, a human being. No, in this case, the Daya book, uh, the, the spirit, the ghost, it possesses a sofa. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this movie has to be more ridiculous uh, than Velocipaster. And truth be told, it has a worst uh, rating on IMDb. But there are parts of this movie that, quite frankly, aren't horrible. Let's just put it that way. There are other parts of the movie that are completely, completely ridiculous. But there's a, uh, a sub-story that is actually eh, moderately compelling, a decent ghost story. And we're going to get to that when we get to our reviews. Uh, as I said, we're also going to be discussing top action films of the 80s. But, Barry, before we do, why don't we go to June 1985, Sam Houston Coliseum. It is Ric Flair versus Magnum TA. Tell the good folks what you thought about this one. I just I caught what you just did there, too. When you said June, you were like, June. So you're, June. You, were dragging, uh, exact, you were dragging it out a little bit. So, yeah, this is uh, Lou. We may have to we may have to do some sort of kibitz. Uh, throw down here. All I will say to you is, is lachayim to you, okay? Lachayim. Lachayim. Don't hawk me a chinik, mister. That's so. it, which I, that's what I, that's my favorite, right? Shout there, out but. to all our Yiddish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of them. Right. Yiddish, which is about, uh, it's almost, uh, it's archaic at this point, and I love it, but. Uh, look, I guarantee you there's a few people in the brothership that still use Yiddish expressions. I'm seeking you out now, please. So there is nobody know? less Jewish than you, and you're fucking using Yiddish expressions <laughs> right now. So of course there are, but nobody. We don't know what the hell any of this means. That's that's the other thing. I I remember Let's we were at one point. All right, fine. Uh, yeah, good match. Good. Let's get back on the Jewish stuff. No, this was a. Uh, this is a great match. This is the Yiddish episode of Rick. This is absolutely <laughs> awesome. I got to make a note. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> We do, and uh, if you remind me, I will post a Yiddish dictionary in the group. <laughs> there's there's an online Yiddish dictionary which will explain. It. It's a lot of fun, but this is a uh, getting back to the match. And I don't think uh, I don't think Magnum TA or Ric Flair are Yiddish in any form. I but do not believe they are. <laughs> there's a chance. There's, Flair was adopted at least, so there's <laughs> always a chance that something. But I don't believe so. In any case, look, it's a really good match. What do you what do you expect? You've got flair, and this is Magnum rising, right? This is this is just this is after Mid South or right about that cusp of Mid South going to Crockett. This is Magnum just rising now, poised to be the biggest star. And this is where a lot of the stories of flair being legendary came from. This whole period of the mid '80s, you know, when Terry Taylor tells that story of Ric Flair. You know, and, and that took place in Mid South, and That's I think it was like real. '85, right? Right? Right around '85 or so. And uh, you know, Flair going out, getting an hour of sleep, passed out, hungover, and just a mess. Wakes up, goes in, and has a 60-minute match, and it's a great match. And that really, we talk a lot about Ric Flair over the last few years, and certainly the luster has been worn off with like sandpaper. That being said, you go back to Flair. Look, I, I was a, we were all if you were a smart fan in the 80s into the early 90s, you were a Ric Flair fan. There was no way around it. He was it. He was it for us. Flair, the horseman, Terry Gordy. These were the guys. This is a great match. Highly recommended. But as Jeff said at the top of the show. The what ifs about Magnum, Jeff, and we did. I brought up that that really hip 
you know, phrase hot take, but we did have a hot take. Do you remember what it was? I'm sure I don't. Well, it was. It was that uh, it, it was kind of twofold. One was long term. Who would have been more viable for a promotion and more valuable, Kerry Von Erich or Magnum TA? And the thing that we really looked at, Magnum's career would have soared once he flipped and became a heel. And that was where I, I think we were we had a really interesting discussion about that. You know, you know what I think is interesting to consider with Magnum, whether it would be, uh, you know, if he had won the title, let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, at Starcade 86, which is uh, I'm not sure if that's when they were priming Flair to meet him or not, because I think right when he had the accident, he was doing a program with Jim Garvin, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I think uh, please feel free to uh, play with your phone, Barry. Oh, yeah, uh, look, I got to <laughs> take this. Ball. Hold on. Hey. Mr. Allen, how are you, sir? Jeff, what are the odds? Is Terry Allen on the phone? Oh, well, tell him we said hello. All right. Yeah. So anyway, I think if they had given him the title in 1986, you know, one of the things, uh, the complaints that I always had of, like, say, Lex Luger was he looked like an imitation of Hulk Hogan. And I'm not poo-pooing the way his body had been belly. I mean, he was in tremendous shape, had a great look. But he was obviously trying to be Hulk Hogan, okay? And that's what a lot of guys were trying to be in the uh, mid to late part of the 80s. Magnum TA had a a great physique, but he he didn't look like he was jacked to the gills like certain, you know, like some guys did. He just, like, had a good physique, had a good look, had, you know, his hair was, you know, uh, down. He had a, a, a great mullet, had that great Magnum PI mustache. Uh, which is how he became Magnum TA, which apparently was thanks to Ernie Ladd for uh, giving him the idea. But what you had was you had a guy that was uh, really kind of created by Ernie Ladd and Bill Watts uh, after Dusty Rhodes sent him up there from Florida. They created Magnum TA. And then when he got sent to Crockett, Dusty Rhodes further expounded on the, you know, let's just say the quote unquote character of Magnum TA uh, has been developed. And, and he turned it into uh, just a, a megastar. Now, I think what would have been interesting about Terry Allen, if Terry Allen had been given the strap, as I said, just in theory, at Starcade 86. So then instead of having a Hulk Hogan like lookalike or a clone, I, you know, Magnum TA was not, you know, he was a guy in great shape, but he not, he wasn't necessarily a Hulk Hogan like lookalike. He was different, which is, I think, what Crockett needed to take the ball and run with it and provide any sort of competition. You don't have an imitation. You have something different. And I think that would have worked for Crockett. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely would have worked for Crockett. I think, and I, I would imagine Crockett had the same thought. Certainly there's the, the cloud of dusty, which means you never know what's going to take place. But from all things that we understand, dusty was Magnum's biggest supporter. And dusty also was smart enough to jump on the Magnum train fairly early in Crockett, meaning he knew he saw the rub that was going to come from it. And certainly Magnum's going to get some sort of rub teaming with dusty also. So I think the possibilities with Magnum, were limitless i think positioned right he would have been i don't want to say he would have been bigger than hulk hogan because i don't see that you don't have that machine crockett didn't have the machine that vince did he would have been arguably the second biggest baby face in the entire country i believe meaning when eventually he did turn heel 
and I do think he would have turned heel, it would have been super impactful. So it, it's a what if. And it's, you know what, Jeff, I think in hindsight now, with that car crash being 35, 36 years ago, it really truly was a shame, let alone that the man almost died and let alone that, you know, he still has physical disabilities to this day based off of it. I think the scope of professional wrestling was completely changed. Now, granted, something I don't think I ever could have predicted was the Nikita Koloff turn, which was Magnum getting injured. And was that successful? My God, was that hugely successful? Short term. Short term. And I I, there. Yeah. So absolutely short term, meaning I think that it was good. And then Nikita stepped away from the ring for a while, came back. It was never the same at that stage. It was over. But, you know, I I think the boat being missed with that, Nikita should have turned heel again. He should have. And I think he did at some point. But I think it was, you know, that was way late years later. But I I think he should have turned babyface, which he did. Team with Dusty, super mega powers, whatever they were being called. And then turned on Dusty again at the end of this run much like, say, Ole did in the cage in Atlanta in 1980. Yeah, and I think uh, using that scenario, I think what they could have done is they do the turn of Nikita. He and Dusty become the superpowers, okay? Brilliant short-term idea. Let it run for, I'm just going to give a, a arbitrary figure, uh, three months, okay? Then you have three months to sit there and kind of step back and say, okay, what the F do we do now? Okay, we, we've got our uh, the guy that was going to be our biggest star, Terry Allen, is now no longer part of the equation. What do we do now? And it's not something you need to come up with by Saturday's TV. Okay, now you can run with the idea that Nikita is the baby face. And then, as you said, and very correctly, you do a thing where it's the horse, you know, uh, Tully and Arn or Tully and Flair in a cage against, uh, you know, Nikita and Dusty. And then they all jump dusty because inevitably everyone jumped dusty, uh, you know, and then he turns back. But now that that's happened, you've already got your other guy, whether it was, you know, Barry Windham or whoever that you can now bring up and you, or, you know, or it could have been Lex Luger, could have been Sting, whoever. But now you've positioned yourself where that other guy is now taking Magnum's spot, if anyone really could, because all things that I've heard. I remember, uh, God, I can't remember who told me this, but someone told me that uh, they had walked up to David Crockett uh, at a at a show uh, and asked him, you know, like, uh, what are you going to do? Or there was a conversation about that, and David Crockett reportedly said, that was our world champion, you know, that he's irreplaceable. Right. If, if that was the guy that they were lining up to be, whether it was, uh, you know, a short-term and do a, you know, a flare magnum feud that would go a couple years, or, or whether or not he was going to just flat out take Flair's spot, you know, and because Flair at that point, let's just uh, say, I'm trying to think when Flair was born, Flair would have been, what was it? It's ballpark around 1945, I think. So at that point, Ric Flair is close. If he's not 40, he's closing in on it. Okay. And of course, Ric Flair would have been in one of those positions where he didn't think he was ready to step away. But I think, if they had programmed him with Magnum, a guy that he knew and respected, as opposed to somebody they just brought into the company, I think Flair would have been more amenable to working a, a program where uh, it, Flair, as part of the Horseman, is chasing the world title, or you know, Flair and Magnum have this you know series where they're trading the title back and forth, that kind of thing. And because of the loss of Magnum, 
you know, it, it caused the Nikita turn, which, as I said, for a short term was an absolutely brilliant move. But uh, the steam really ran out of that feud quickly. So getting back to the match in Houston, you know, there's uh, this match. If you watch this match, there are, are other out there like on YouTube. There are other uh, Flair Magnum matches. There's one, I think. uh where is it from? Maybe like uh, maybe like Charlotte or something. And then there's one from the studios of TBS that, that are out there. And it's interesting because if you watch them, they're all basically the same match, you know. Uh, right. and, and it was funny because last week, you know, Jeff Steele talked about how he was sitting ringside uh, during a match uh, with a, a young lady who was next to him. And they were doing a match with Ken Mantell where Ken Mantell was wearing the headgear because he had lost a hair match. And whatever finish they did, this young girl said, they did the same fucking match last night in Monroe. And that's when he realized that these matches were being done, the same match was being done around the horn. And here, Flair and Magnum had their match that they had set out, you know, and it's funny because according to Ric Flair, of course, Bret Hart was the only uh, world champion that ever did the same moves in every match. But I digress. Uh, So, but this match is, it's in no way to take away from the fact it's a really good match. Okay. Is it the greatest Ric Flair match I've ever seen? No, but there's sure a hell of a lot worse ways you can spend 20 to 25 minutes and watch this match because the crowd is absolutely on fire. Magnum as a baby face is on fire. They do a bit of a screw job ending. And then Houston legend, Wahoo McDaniel, uh, by the way, Barry, Wahoo's starting to look a little long in the tooth here at this point. I'm just going to yeah. say Tougher than a $2 steak and an all-time great athlete that's not appreciated uh, in, in pro wrestling because Wahoo is an amazing, amazing athlete. But he was getting up there at this point. But he and Flair get in there. He does the run in to save Magnum from getting jumped by Flair after the match is over. Uh, he and Flair, who, you know, you talk about guys that Flair has worked with over the years. And, of course, the uh, obvious answer is Ricky Steamboat is the guy that Flair's always worked with the most. But I think Wahoo's got to be a pretty close second, Bear. What do you think? I think so too. And Wahoo was one of those guys. And I, I remember for me, I, it was, wasn't too long. I think Wahoo was in the AWA within a year or two of this. And, uh, I remember seeing Wahoo with the professor Pete Letterberg many times in the seventies. And we would go to West Palm on Monday nights and whatever reason, Wahoo really seemed to like West Palm. He was always walking around the area, talking to people and, uh, Wahoo was a badass, but Wahoo would come out and he was a legit badass right from the get-go. And then I see him in the AWA and he comes out and it's essentially headlock and rest hold right from the get-go, which tells you like the guy is really slowing down a lot. Definitely a little longer in the tooth. I think the career, at least his better days were now behind him. But Wahoo did have a 20 plus year career. I mean, he was a guy. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, we, you know, there's always Certainly people are going to have their favorites. Two guys that deserve to be in any pro wrestling Hall of Fame, regardless of the criteria, Wahoo and Dick Murdoch. So before we get to our film review for the day for the stellar, stellar film, Killer Sofa, let's talk a little great action movies of the 80s, the top ones. And I can, spoiler alert, tell you that the one you think is number one is not number one. Let's go to that conversation, Barry. Barry, I know it is never a bad time to talk movies with Lord Barron's. So courtesy of GameSpot.com, Barry Rose, oh, this is right in your wheelhouse. I offer you the best action flicks of the 1980s. 
Ooh, that sounds kind of exciting. These are the kind of movies, too, that you and I watch, Jeff. We, uh, I can sit up, and I, I want to say it was sometimes two, on a loop. <laughs> yeah, it, which is the truth. It's like, but there was, I don't know, within the last few months, and I want to say it was Tubi, and Tubi is a this great free service uh, of showing movies on, on that I stream, and they were showing all Chuck Norris movies from the 80s, all of them. They had going back to Lone Wolf McQuaid and uh, Silent Rage, to the missing in action, to all of them. So much fun, though. I kind of feel, as you just said, I could put these 80s movies on an endless loop and watch them all day. I'm always, when you ask me for my favorite Chuck Norris movie, I'm always going Code of Silence. God, what a great movie. And let's be honest, though, that is his most legitimate movie. And yes. it is, it's his best movie, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we're starting off. Oh, Barry, right away. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. It, there's 19 movies listed here. Okay, gonna kind of jump uh, jump in real quick before we get to the, uh, the the top movies. I know you're immediately gonna have a dispute here because it says here number 19 is Roadhouse. Barry, what kind of shit is this, Jeff? Yeah, Who's this fucking list from? Well, a, you know, obviously it's anti-Semitic. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, not, we're not sure why. Is it crazy uh, <laughs> or a, funk? Just or? before anyone gets upset, yeah. the joke we had before we started recording uh, yes. uh, about a movie that I've been watching, so that yes. will uh, be discussed in a uh, a future episode of Breaking Kid. And we'll we'll be able to explain it a little more in depth. Exactly. Uh, so what a what a great movie. You know, Roadhouse to me. So we're talking about Chuck Norris movies. And that could have been Chuck Norris, and I love Patrick Swayze. Chuck obviously. Norris versus Dalton. Who wins? Could you imagine that would have been that you? could have put uh chuck norris as dalton or he could have been the bad guy i know he didn't want to do the bad guy roles but uh yeah it, it, roadhouse is such a great movie and to me roadhouse it's a polarizing movie for some people that that just go oh this is terrible but yeah you know whatever the plot holes or acting gaps that occur it's all part of the charm of the film in my opinion this movie is a great representation of 1980s action films so is Roadhouse Terry Funk's finest performance on the cinema? Uh, as opposed to Paradise Alley? Eh, you know. And what else? And he did The Wild Side, which was a TV show. Yes. So what again, I these? ask you, is this his yeah. finest? Yeah, it absolutely is. Because okay. I, I can't name any others, I don't think. So. Number 18, Bloodsport. This is wow. a tough list, Barry. That's a gr another great. That's a, so this is a good list, though. I mean, I don't yeah. like the positioning of these two movies, but. The Kumate. You've got Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. Yes. You've got Forrest uh, Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker in, in an early role. I think this would have been after Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but before he became quote unquote legitimate as an actor. And you've got Jean-Claude Van Damme at possibly, you know, his best here. This this is where his brother was killed. And I believe his brother was in reality a uh, a, a true world famous martial artist whose name completely escapes me. Bloodsport's great. Saw it in the theaters and walked out and said, wow, all movies should be just like this movie. Love yes. it. And of course the, uh, oh God, I'm drawing a blank now, the, the heel. Bolo Young. Bolo Young. Fantastic. And looked like a guy that should have been a wrestling heel, you know, because yep. yep. he was amazing. Number 17, Barry Commando. I mean, not the first time I'm guessing we're going to see Schwarzenegger on this list. No, you're or the last time, I mean. You're firing on all cylinders right now with this list. It commando. That's what is, she said. That yeah. is, it's uh, you know, and then I I start to go, okay, which which Schwarzenegger movie do I like the best? And Commando's right at the top. And look, this is a Commando is uh, 
as Stephen King said about Maximum Overdrive, it's a moron movie. There's no thinking required, but it's a lot of fun. This is a, a really fun, great action movie. I remember the day that I saw it in the theaters for the first time. That's how much I like this movie. So, uh, and a, a great cast that includes uh, Vernon Wells, who is in The Road Warrior. It includes Bill Duke. It includes, what's the guy's name? I think it's David, something that was from the Warriors. David Patrick Kelly. Thank you, who's amazing in this. Uh, uh, Schwarzenegger tells him, uh, you're a funny guy, Sully. I like you. That's why I'm going to kill you last. That's my You said you would let me go. <laughs> I lied. I lied. Drops him. <laughs> Fucking great movie. And Ray Don Chong. Let's, yes, while, yes. While at times in the movie, there's, I mean, was there a, she was so stunningly beautiful in her day, I had the biggest crush on Ray Don Chong. Can't believe it wasn't consummated, you know. Yeah. Can't, I can't believe Ray didn't give you a call. Well, uh, it was you... consummated mentally <laughs> many times. Yeah, by <laughs> yourself, but, you know. Well, come on. Yeah, so, you know. She <laughs> probably to she, work with. You, you know, I'm figuring if she did call you, what would she ask you, Barry? What was the first thing that she would ask you? She would have said, uh... Uh, what would what would Spiker think that she would have asked you? Oh, server or man. That's Jaworski's getting a shirt made. So yeah. that's it now. It, it's a photo of Ray Don Chong with a, a text bubble next to her face. <laughs> server or, or manager. manager. I love it. I get the first shirt. That's only okay. fair. Next one. <laughs> At number 16, Barry. Yes. Oh, I said we were going to get to Schwarzenegger more than once. Conan the Barbarian, I can tell you right now. Your old friend, Tom Nash, the Punisher, right now may be having a seizure because there is no movie, no movie that Tom Nash worships more than Conan the Barbarian. Literally, his entire Instagram feed is nothing but Conan uh, photos. So I'm not a huge fan, which would go a line that of this Conan is Tom's or Tom favorite. Nash. <laughs> Kayfabe, Tom right. Nash and Conan. But uh, no, but Tom, look, Tom is Tom. But uh, the Conan movies, I just never got into it. I don't know if it was that, you know, I, I don't well, know. I was not a fan of Conan the Destroyer, but Conan the Barbarian is a it's a really good film. A Sandal Bergman looked really good. Yes. Uh, yeah. James Earl Jones is Thusala Doom. So uh, the guy that turns into a he turns into a snake. Yeah, so great uh, good stuff. 15. Number 15. The only the 15th best action movie of the entire decade. Lethal Weapon. And this is Lethal Weapon one and Lethal Weapon one. I mean, wow, that was a I think that was a game changer for a lot of people in Hollywood. That was a true big, big deal when it came out. Gary Busey was fucking unbelievable in this movie and everything seems to work in this movie too i'm surprised at only 15 now with that being said i don't like it as much of some of the other movies because i i do like you know i like that raw kind of cheesiness of like a blood sport or a roadhouse where lethal weapon i think was a they were playing it straight it was a serious movie but in some ways, it's the demarcation point for a, an action movie in the 80s, in my opinion. So surprised it's so low, Jeff. And a movie that uh, turned the uh, the writer, uh, the guy that did the script, I believe his name was Shane Black. Sure. Uh, turned him into a mega, mega in-demand writer. All right. Uh, trivia for... trivia question, Jeff. You ready? Put yep. your hand on the buzzer. Uh, it's name, on the buzzer. Name a mm. movie that Shane Black was in as an actor. Ooh. You got me on that one. I got to be honest. And one of your favorite movies that I'm aware of. What? Yeah. It, another hit? Schwarzenegger movie. Uh, T2? 
No. One where they're in a jungle. Oh, Predator. There you go. Shane Black was one of the... Uh, I'm not going to say whether or not that movie may be further up our list. Better be. Yeah. <laughs> better fucking be, yeah. Number 14. Oh, Barry, I know you're a fan, and you are anxiously awaiting the sequel, which comes out in about a month or two. It's Top Gun. Ugh. Yes. Yes, Roadhouse, not as good as Top Gun. Yeah, so I didn't like Top Gun when it first came out. I saw it in the theaters. I didn't care then. I don't care now, and I don't care about uh, about the sequel, which is coming out some 36, 37 years later. I just don't care. I, don't, I didn't like so it. So are I, you I just, trying yeah. to say you're not going to be going to the cinema on opening night to see Top Gun Maverick? I am not going to be going to the cinema on opening night, correct? I, I am going to just sit for a moment and let the listenership recover from that shocking news because you have stated before what a huge, <laughs> huge Tom Cruise fan you are. <clears throat> Number 13, oh, I know a certain manager of, is it Mariano's in Illinois that will be getting a chub real quick because number 13, Barry, is Batman. Oh, so, yeah, we're talking, I guess, the Michael movie. Keaton Batman. Right. So the first one, which was 1989 when it came out, Correct. the first of the current. So I, I, is it an action movie? That's a tough I, I guess it falls into that. It's an action movie, but I it isn't. In my opinion, it's not an action movie the same way that, say, Roadhouse or Commando or any, and any Top Gun's not really an action movie, in my opinion, at all. But I like the original Batman. I don't. I remember seeing it. I saw it on an opening day, I think like an 11 o'clock Times Square, New York City. I saw it. Yeah, I thought it was good, but I didn't absolutely love it. I think Keaton was obviously upstaged by Jack Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. But yeah, I, I like it. I don't know if I love it, though. I have stated here, and I will uh, continue right. to stand by my opinion, that okay. Christian Bale is my favorite Batman. Will you, Jeff, will you give us a little Christian Bale impersonation? Uh, are you talking about the uh, from the film or are you talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. Uh, that, well, that, you, that clip that oh. they famously <laughs> did? Uh, uh, what was it? Oh, go. I, yeah. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, you're a fucking disgrace. <laughs> he was out of control. I love he's, those clips when they get viral. Yeah, he's a little highly strong. He's a great actor, but he's a little highly strong. Yeah, he's a, I'll tell you what, you ever, it was it called the machinist. Yes. Where he like went down to about 130 pounds. God, yes. Was, wow. So, now, Barry, at number 12, here is a movie that you and I, I know both love and I have no problem with it being uh, placed here at number 12. 1986. It's big trouble in little China. So this would make probably my top 25 movies of all time. If not, it's certainly right there. It's bubbling. I love this film. I can watch it all the time. Is this truly another action film? I guess so. But there's a lot of comedy. It's it's a Carpenter movie. So you're going to get a mix of a lot. I think based off of what I've heard so far, this placement is probably correct. But this could also wind up being one of my favorite movies on the list. So big thumbs up. And I believe, Jeff, am I right or am I wrong on this? Are they doing a sequel or a prequel or something? They're making there's a new Big Trouble in Little China that I think The Rock is involved with. I had not heard that. Okay, I don't know all the details, but I know something's going on with this. I loved uh, Kurt Russell as Jack Burton, the uh, owner-operator of the Pork Chop Express. Uh, just uh, so much great stuff going on there. And, of course, 
the lead heel guy we've talked about a million times was on the Seinfeld Chinese restaurant episode. What's his name? James Hong. James, yeah, fantastic oh, yeah. in this oh, okay. movie. Uh, yeah, and it's like an adventure fantasy, you know, but uh, it just somehow it all worked for me. I, I enjoyed it. Now, Barry, I have to say number 11 I have not seen. I have seen part three and really loved part three, but they have part two of The Evil Dead. Yeah, it, I think we were talking about this Evil Dead 2 when it was uh... – Movies that have been banned worldwide or something like that. Movies that have yes. been censored or banned. I remember we I talked remember about that. that. Yeah, so I've seen both of the Evil Dead movies. I have seen every episode of the canceled well, there's, there's actually, show. There's actually three Evil Deads. Yeah, and, and I saw that. I saw the third one. The first one to That's, me will always the be third the third one was uh, Army of Darkness. Yeah, which was fun, actually. Yeah. It's a fun movie. But again, action movie, it's a fantasy. It's a horror movie. If you want to call it an action movie, that's all right. Now, I wouldn't place it above Roadhouse or the other movies. I wouldn't place it above any of the other movies that you mentioned. Number 10, Barry, from 1981. You wanted an impression. I'm going to give you one. Are you ready? Yep. Call me Snake. Oh. Escape from New York. So you know what I love about this? Kurt Russell making two appearances on this list, first yes. off, and well-deserved two appearances. I'm a huge Kurt Russell That's fan. That's one more than Swayze, by the way. Yeah, what, what else would you put? <laughs> Swayze, Ghost, Dirty Dancing? Not really. Ghost is an action-adventure. Let's be Sure, <laughs> sure. I think this movie, this was a game-changer in a lot of ways because when this movie came out, you and I were either in high school or just out of high school. And this was the movie that everyone was talking about the following Halloween after this movie came out there. Any party you went to, you're going to find a half dozen to a dozen snake snake Pliskins. This was a really, really big deal as far as cool action movies. I love this film. Harry Dean Stanton, you know, Donald Pleasance. Ox Baker. Ox fucking Baker. Apparently, now who was it? Was it Bruiser Brody? was supposed to, I uh, guess, be the original. There was a story, and I think it was Brody, and I guess the filming schedule didn't work, so they went with Ox. I mean, my God, Ox was a great choice. Ernest Borgnine. The great uh, Adrian, Adrian Barbo and the girls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought great you were going to say Adrian Adonis. I was going to go, I don't remember him in that, but yeah, I digress. Could have been. Could have yeah. been. Yeah. Great. And I believe she was married to Carpenter when this movie was made. So, yes. Uh, Excellent movie. I will say the sequel to this, which was Escape from L.A., one of the bigger pieces of shit that I've ever seen. But this movie, fantastic. Love it to death. I want to say also one last cast member. Lee Van Cleef was in this. Yes. Movie. Yes. Yeah, yes. he played. Uh, and he Donald Pleasant, uh, yeah. you know. So, yeah, tremendous cast. Barry, number nine, a movie you are well familiar with, one of your Favorite movies of all time from 1984, Barry. Tell them what it is. 1984, it's Ghostbusters. Wrong. I'll be back. I'll be back. Terminate. This might be my favorite list of all is time. It number nine. Number nine, Barry. Yeah, and I can go with it. Is it an action movie? It is. Is it a sci-fi movie? It absolutely is. Did this movie make Arnold a worldwide breakout star? It did. Did it spawn, I believe, four to five sequels? It absolutely did. This movie is fantastic. Is it a better movie than T2? No. 
Do I like it more than T2? I do, but, and I have to assume T2's on the list because that was also groundbreaking. Nope. Really? 90s. 90s. Oh, 90s. Yeah. Was it 90 or 91? 92-ish, uh, I think. Yeah. That's a shame too because that, that really is a, a spectacular movie. I, I would argue that T2 is more of an action film. The original Terminator is more of a science fiction film. What do you think? I'd go 100%. I'd go. You're 100% correct, Jeff. Check. Number eight, Barry. Predator. A lot of Arnold on here, by the way. Thank God. And it should just, it should be a lot of Arnold. You've there. You're winning on this list. You've got your snake Pliskins, Kurt Russell. You've got your Arnold's on here. Swayze's made an appearance. Jean-Claude fucking Van Damme has made an appearance. Where uh, the hell is Segal? That's all I want to know. <laughs> Segal's in Russia apparently right now, Jeff. <laughs> so, uh, as he's moved over there to, uh, to help the world. But, uh, yeah, I love predator. I, yeah. And again, guess, uh, what a cast, uh, Jeff again. Yeah. Jesse Ventura uh, was hilariously awesome in that. Ain't got time to bleed, you know. And uh, who was the guy? Uh, oh, Bill Duke, also in that one. Bill Duke, Sonny Landham, who was the uh, the Native American. Yes, that's the guy who played. Uh, he played Billy, right? Yeah, yeah. He who, was who, Billy, and he was also in Forty Eight Hours. If you yes, remember, he yeah, was one of the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. So fantastic action film. Uh, great so movie. great. Number seven, Barry. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. Yeah, I, I, again, I think this movie changed the, a lot of the direction of action movies, successful action movies, and movies in general in some ways. I, I think this is one of the great movies of all time, absolutely deserves to be on this list, deserves to be in the top 10, maybe even a little bit higher. You said seven, Jeff? Yes. Maybe deserves Num to be in the top five. Number six, right ahead of that, Barry, at number six, Die Hard. It's only the sixth best action film of the decade, Barry. So I, I just said this 90 seconds Suck on ago. it, Barry. Suck it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, best list you've ever, you've ever offered. I mean, it's fucking Die Hard. It is Die Hard. It is again. This is a movie that is, uh, you know, 1989. It's uh, "Ode to Joy" is the theme song. It's, uh, you know, it's Alan Rickman in his screen debut. Do you know you that really think you're going to win, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee Kaye, motherfucker! What a great movie. I've watched it. I'll say 250 times. I will continue to watch it. Again. There are certain legacies of our show. Do I shit often on lawns? Does pineapple belong on pizza? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie, Jeff? Well, it's funny because in the article, the <laughs> last line says Die Hard is considered by many to be a Christmas movie. And then they have Christmas movie cross out. And it says one of the best action movies of the 80s for all these reasons. So they crossed out the Christmas movie part, Barry. Sure. Now it is time to get to our top five. I'm going to say there are a couple controversial selections here, which always makes a list. Uh, you know, it'd be real easy to just, you know, stamp in Die Hard or one of these other movies we've talked about. But no, they went outside the box on this list. I think at very least you'll find the top five interesting because I have to tell you, and this is a, a slight spoiler alert. Number one is a film you would have never thought of. Okay. But it's a film I've seen that is absolutely fantastic. That hasn't been seen by a wide enough audience with that caveat. Let's start at number five, Barry. 1982. Oh, it's the first 
in a series. It's Sly Stallone, First Blood. I think so. I and you know what? It, this is this is a, a movie. This you know what was interesting when this movie came out. I guess I was like 18 years old, and it was very confusing. Big full to head me. of hair. Oh, thin waist, full you head have, of hair. Did you have a ponytail with that with that little fro? Like it was a little ponytail. Yeah, maybe. I wish I could. If yeah, I didn't do that. But I'll, I'll tell you, it's this was a confusing movie, especially for somebody at that age of 18, because it, you go into it, you're expecting. Rocky, which it certainly became essentially Rocky with a machine gun in a lot of ways. But at the time, it struck me as how we had failed a lot of our veterans. That's what I took away from this movie, like a social conscious at that age, which is crazy because I uh, that isn't like me. But I, I walked out and I felt a little sad. I was like, wow, that, you know, that's that's a shame what we do to vets. You know, Sly gives that impassioned speech towards the end, right? And I was like, wow, that's that means that Richard Crenn in this movie, but at Brian Dennehy as the, the great Brian Dennehy, absolutely. And what a stuff. I mean, you got Richard, right? Brian Dennehy and Richard Crenna right there. That's a strong one two punch. And two guys that we lost over the last couple of years, rest in peace. But it's this is a good movie. And I'll tell you what, in hindsight, looking at it now, this is an action. That's a hundred percent this is an action movie. I didn't like the rest of the First Blood series at all. I thought they were terrible, but this first one did make an impression. I do like this pick. And you know, it, this was not a movie that uh was the first movie to ever deal with some of the effects of soldiers returning from war, especially not to politicize it here, but a war that was not popular. World War II, I mean, we're freaking going against Hitler, for God's sakes. And so that was a, a quote unquote popular war, uh, you know, but Vietnam, for a lot of reasons, was an, uh, a quote unquote unpopular war. And especially making the fact that the soldiers that were coming back were treated so horribly by so many people, I think I want to say I know that Coming Home dealt with uh, soldiers returning from war. Uh, I know the Deer Hunter dealt with that issue. I'm sure there must have been others. But, you know, here's Stallone uh, is just this guy that's for all his physical attributes. You know, the character of John Rambo was mentally was was fractured. Uh, I think that's a nice way of putting it. He yeah. was he was very damaged. And the way that he was mistreated by this small town sheriff and stuff uh, really brought to light how damaged some men that and women that came back from uh, the war were. And I, I thought this was uh, I think this is a very interesting placement. Uh, you know, yeah. Was this like uh, uh, um, Die Hard or, or something like that? No, it was it was an interesting, more thought provoking action film. I, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and it's it, that's and that's a very good analysis of it, and it's interesting because there's not a lot of uh, Stallone movies where where they that they truly are thought provoking, right? They're they're very basic, and I I think ironically the rest of this series became that they became just basic shoot 'em up type of movies without much of a conscience. But that first one, so it wasn't just me that that had this feeling at the end, huh? Huh, it's almost like we think alike, Bear. I tell you what. Wow. So, number four, 1986, James Cameron's Aliens. Now, what, what, what year did you say? 1986. This was the second in the series. The second, that's right. Yeah. Were you a yeah. fan? I'm a tempered fan of the Alien series for whatever reason. I didn't, you know, a lot of people rave about it. I didn't absolutely love it. Certainly, some of it's groundbreaking. 
But this is, again, this, this is a weird pick in the fact that this is a sci-fi movie to me. And it's well, less I think I, I think I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think okay. the first one absolutely was a sci-fi. Right. The second one, I think uh, if you kind of look it up, I think before science fiction, it's listed as an action film. Because, you know, let's be honest, this is a group of Marines that are landing on this planet. Uh, that is, uh, of course, the uh, quote unquote uh, uninhabited. Uh, well, they find out, <laughs> you know, but uh, again, uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, she's not just the damsel in distress. She is a kick ass action hero in this movie. Uh, you know, get your fucking hands off of her when the alien has uh, the little the little girl. I can't yes, it was. But, um, you know, and that, you know, she's in like sort of that. uh it's like a piece of construction equipment and she's got herself inside of it and uh, she's going after the alien. And then there's that scene where uh, I don't know if it was the gurney weaver or maybe it was one of the Marines uh, that goes in and they realize they're in the middle of the nest of the, of the aliens. <laughs> That's a great like, scene. It's yeah. kind of a Holy shit moment, you know, but yeah, no, this is uh, I think the first two, uh, of the Alien series, the first two are the best. The first two are wildly different movies in a lot of ways. Uh, the third one that was done by David Fincher, who is a very uh, uh, gritty, dark director, you know, that's what Alien 3 was. And then they kind of started getting further and further away. But the first two were really fantastic films and, and you can really enjoy. Number three, Barry, you know, you bitched about Die Hard being low. How in God's name, at 1981, The Road Warrior, uh, I'm not going to say it's the greatest film of all time, but uh, it wouldn't be far removed if I, but how is this not even the best action film of the decade? It's number three, Barry. Well, so a little grateful that at least this movie made it into the top three. The Road Warrior was a game changer, not only from the perspective of professional wrestling, because it's certainly, there must have been dozens of gimmicks spawned off of this, and I think still are. There are still gimmicks coming out that are directly attributed to the Road Warrior. But at the same time, this was a film that when you saw that this is the definition, I think, of an action movie, especially for that era. And it was a game changer. It was highly unique. Mad Max had come out, but I don't think a lot of people saw Mad Max prior to that. I, I know that Mad Max, when I saw it, was actually released uh, after the Road Warrior. So I wound up seeing it then. But this this movie it wins on every every single level. I, I absolutely just think this is such a fantastic movie. Yeah, I guess one and two really have to be powerhouses. Well, so here's the thing. I remember seeing this movie at the Venerable Lauderhill Mall uh, in Lauderhill, Florida. And uh, I went with my buddies and I was not for me. You know, like you said, I, I don't think Mad Max had been released, but I think I went with like uh, three or four guys, and I think maybe one of the guys that I went with had seen Mad Max and said, oh, yeah, you, yeah man, you guys are going to like this movie. And what I like about the movie is they set it up. Here's what the movie's about. They do like the narration. They show, the, you know, the, they fought for the precious oil and the fuel, and they talked and talked. And then the movie starts, and it's literally you're inside the guy's car. And he's being chased by, you know, this gang that's after his fuel and he's got his dog with him. That fantastic Australian cattle dog whose name was Barry. You remember? Uh, dog. That's right. The, the dog's name was Dog, which is a perfect yep. name for a dog. Okay. And uh, he was the dog was fantastic in the movie, too. Remember the scene where he's holding the uh, the string that's got the tr the trigger? 
Oh right? yeah, and the yeah. shotgun against the guy's head. Yeah. Don't move. Don't move. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then he sees the rabbit outside yes. the car, and he's like, "Fuck." Anyway, yeah. there is so much great shit that happens in this movie. Uh, and you know, this movie is now over 40 years old, but you watch this movie and it's like, you're watching a movie that could have been released today. Uh, you know, and I like the fact that, you know, there's the, the stunts are so like, uh, they're not like, there's no CGI and the, the utterly fantastic car chase that basically encompasses probably at least 45 minutes of the end of the movie where he's, you know, being chased and he's driving the big rig to, you know, to get him away from the uh, the guys that are in the encampment and the women. Uh, it's just so fantastic. And this is absolutely, Mad Max was not the movie that introduced Mel Gibson to the world. It was The Road Warrior. Number two, this will make you happy, Barry. Yay. 1987, Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop. Yeah, that boy, do I get uh, absolutely. What another movie that when I walked out, I was just like, wow, just blown away definitely didn't love number two as much but that first one made an impact it was one of those movies i walk out and i i I would venture to say it's in my top 25 films of all time i've seen it i can recite lines from it i think i mentioned i met peter weller at a fan fest three or four years ago interesting guy but i was able to get a somebody had done this lithograph beautiful piece of artwork on robocop and uh, I purchased it, and I got Weller to sign it. And we, he put down one of his lines. I think it was uh, – I forget. One of the lines of the movie. I forget which one. One of the iconic lines from the film. And he, well, the, he the put tag it, line in the movie was half man, half machine, all cop. <laughs> no, it was <sighs> – there's a yeah yeah exactly. There's a couple of of great lines. Uh, and there's a, he's got a bunch of great lines. I forget what it was, but it was it was kind of cool to me that I was able to get this beautiful artwork and and get it signed by him with a tagline. And uh, my goal at some point is to get all this shit framed. But th- this was an iconic film, and it, it really, you know, it, it, again, it they even. They incorporated this into professional wrestling as they did when they brought RoboCop, which I think was 89 or 90, 90, 90. Yes. Uh, Capital combat, capital combat, which again, poor idea didn't make any sense. And I didn't like RoboCop too. I I definitely didn't like RoboCop three, but that first one, what a cast. I mean, you know, Clarence Boddicker, one of the great movie villains ever. A hundred percent agree, Jeff. You'd be a hundred percent correct. Check. And then he became shortly thereafter Red Foreman on that 70s <laughs> yes. show. But yeah. no, he, but he, was, got he was Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox. Ronnie you Cox got the was great. Great Ronnie Cox on there. Don't fuck with me. Yeah. And he says that to Miguel Ferrer, who was another great character actor. And then you've got Dan O'Hurley, who plays the uh, the guy who's in charge of the corporation, uh, Ronnie Cox's boss. Ronnie Cox was Dick, which I remember. And uh, he goes, Dick. I'm very disappointed in you, Uh, you know, just, but such a good movie. So many great lines. It's got just the right amount of cheese without going overboard. uh, Well, I'm trying to think, what was the name of the actress? That was the, uh, his partner. Uh, Good looking uh, chick. Nancy Allen was. Yeah. She was in blowout. I remember that. Yeah. That's yeah. She, well, she was married to De Palma at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll give you, you know, the story on her. I mean, shit. Cause I always go all over the board. Right. So the story on Nancy Allen. So she was, she was poised to be kind of a big deal. And a lot of it was tied into De Palma and uh, she did blow out and she wound up leaving 
De Palma for Michael Paré from you know oh. from my fucking Streets of Fire. Streets of Fire, yeah, yeah. So they they wound up, I guess, having an affair and some sort of relationship, and they did a movie together called The Philadelphia Experiment. And that relationship soon ended, but it, I think it really hurt her career in leaving De Palma because other than, I think, RoboCop 1 and 2, I don't know what else she did after that. I'm sure she did something, but nothing that where the profile was big, so I wasn't even aware of it. But I think she was good. What? So he was Murphy in the movie. Yes. Uh, what was her name in the movie? That's going to kill me. Lou, we will depend on you. So I, I love the fact that uh, in this article, it says that RoboCop was set in 2028, imagines an even more rundown version of Detroit uh, in a world struggling with climate change. Uh, you know, uh, since we're six years away, is it that far off of what Detroit looks like at this point, Barry? It, no, I, I mean, you know, no offense to anybody in Detroit. I know we have a couple of listeners, but we, you know, I, I think here's the big thing. Detroit may be a wonderful city. However, the rest of the country has an impression of Detroit. Yes, that that's, is, a, that's a nice is, way of putting it. Yeah, right. That is probably not favorable. And uh, if, you know, if if it is not a shithole, then the the Detroit Tourism Board needs to get on the ball and start to change yeah. the perception of it. They, they need to uh, step up their game. Nancy Allen, according to Lou, was Officer Lewis. So thank you for that. Officer Lewis, Lewis thank you. Yes. So now, Barry, we're at number one, the number one action film of the 1980s. Right off the top of your head, Barry, what have we not discussed? And Because I know there's no way you're going to get this. But just is there anything you're thinking, you're thinking oh, they haven't fucking mentioned that movie yet? It could be that one. What are you thinking? Uh, well, so we covered, if I'm correct, we covered three Schwarzenegger movies. Yes, uh, which would I will be tell the, you it is the, not a yeah. Schwarzenegger. So it isn't it isn't raw deal. All right, that's no. fine. I didn't think it was. Uh, Although what, that had the great Darren McGavin, I believe. It, what a horrible movie! But Darren McGavin. Uh, and we did did we say Code of Silence or no? Uh, no, we did not. It is not a Chuck Norris film. Yeah, so that's a that's a mistake that he he's not even on the list anywhere. Yeah, no, that, that code of silence is great. Yeah, and we talked Silva about that briefly. and all those guys. Yeah, that should be yeah. that should have been on the and list. It's a good yeah, and you know the truth was it was a decent movie. So off the top of my head, I I can't think of anything else. 1989, the world was introduced to the action films of John Woo in oh. Chow, Chow Young Fat and The Killer. Now, The Killer was a couple years before Hard Boiled. Hard Boiled is a little more popular uh, with American audiences, but The Killer was the very first Chow Young Fat movie uh, with John Woo. And holy shit, Barry, is this movie just unbelievable. Chow Young Fat uh, plays a uh, an assassin who accidentally uh, blinds a woman who is a uh, I want to say she's like a musician, like a uh, like a concert uh, pianist or a violinist or something like that. Uh, and so he, in his own way, tries to help her, tries to care for her. And she keeps getting caught in the crossfires of, you know, his job as an assassin, uh, the slow motion, you know, uh, guys diving while they're shooting, that kind of stuff that you would have seen later on. That was all stuff that John Woo came up with he was the visionary director that did this the slow motion shots of guys diving and and bullets flying wow barry john woo and chow young fat were a great great combination 
They were, and they made it. And you're right. In the whether it's the killer, hard, and Hard Boiled got like a major release in the U.S. That was a big deal for a couple of weeks. But the, the, this is this is what an action movie should be, right? Like this is what you would go to see an action movie for. They were a great combination. Do they not make movies any longer? Are they both still alive? Uh, well, no, they're both still alive. Uh... I think when John Woo came over to the United States, uh, he made – I know he made a movie uh, with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme called Hard Target. Uh, yes. He made the uh, the movie we discussed with uh, Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Uh, Face Off. Face Off, yeah, and uh, did a lot of action movies. He was successful. He wasn't like crazy successful like he was – uh, over in Asia, let's put it that way. But Chow Young Fat and John Woo, uh, if I was going to draw like a, uh, an, a corollary, they're almost like Scorsese and De Niro, and that yeah. every film they made together was fantastic. And this is a movie. Uh, if you can go out of your way, if you can find this movie, I know there's there is a a version out there on YouTube uh, that is a dubbed version, and uh, it's out out on YouTube. And if you are looking for something going outside your little movie box that uh, is a little bit different. That's definitely a movie you want to check out. So that's number one, according to GameStop, The Killer, starring Chow Young-Fat. So Barry, let's just, uh, now that we've had a chance to talk about those action films, how surprised were you that The Killer ended up being number one? I think it will very surprised. I, if you would have asked me, I don't think it would have made my list just because I wasn't thinking about it. Can I give you a very bizarre coincidence? The day oh, that do. we, the day that we are recording this segment right now, and you just brought up the killer, it is playing at the Mahoning Drive-In, which is about sixty-five minutes from me where I live. It's playing tonight. Nice. So now let's get to movies that will not be any uh, a movie that will not be on any top movies of the decade. Let's talk about the movie Killer Sofa. <laughs> and I'm not even kidding, folks. It's a movie about a, so a sofa that's possessed. It's just crazy. So we want to thank, first of all, our friends, uh, Sean Ryan, Sean McIver, and uh, Billy, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Billy Enox. And this is Billy's uh, first review for us, and we do appreciate it. So Barry, spoiler alert for all you people out there, has not watched this movie. Why? Well, because apparently Barry doesn't care about you, the listener, quite frankly. No, he's more concerned about, uh, you know, defaming me about uh, my thoughts on uh, the the Yiddish uh, or the Hebrew spirit. And, oh, you're anti-Semitic or something. But no, Barry <laughs> has not watched this movie. I have. And as I said, this is a really bizarre film, and not just because it's about a killer sofa. It's really bizarre because there are parts of this movie that are like you go, Okay, yeah, that's kind of interesting. The, the, the concept is interesting. The fact that the spirit inhabits a sofa is completely ridiculous. Uh, if he you know, had inhabited a, a person, it would have made a much more interesting concept. Do you remember, I'm trying to remember now, Barry, the movie, oh God, it was about uh, a guy. Uh, do you, you remember the X-Files? Oh yeah. Oh, the ball had a guy that was their boss. Do you remember that guy wore the glasses? Yeah. I'll, yeah, he's on uh, he's on another show I watch, and I forget what it is. But yes, I absolutely remember okay, this guy. So he played a maximum security prisoner who uh, was getting set to be electrocuted for uh, for murder. And he, like, I don't know if he makes a pact with a devil or something like that. Absolutely saw this fucking movie. Yeah, uh, do you remember what the name of it was? <sighs> something, I want to say something shock. 1987 
was it Shocker? Was that the name of it? Shocker. There you yeah. go. And, and so if it had been like that, where the spirit inhabited a person, because I really like Shocker. I think that was a great underrated uh, movie of yeah. the 80s that no one talked to. You You liked the movie too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if they had done it that way, where the spirit inhabits a person, I think it would have been a little more interesting. The fact that it inhabits an inanimate, uh, inanimate uh, it's easy for me to say, a uh, piece of furniture makes it kind of ridiculous. Okay. So let's first go, uh, and I will be doing uh, the reviews uh, that have been sent to me because <clears throat> since Perry hadn't watched the movie, I mentioned that again, Mr. Uh, you're letting the, the brothership down. Uh, Sean Ryan first says, Killer Sofa, another installment in films about inanimate objects uh, that kill in the same vein as Deathbed, The Beth, the Bed That Eats. Wow, I got to see that one. Very wow. Uh, slacks or Rubber. Now, by the way, let me just I've say. Seen rubber, actually. Okay. Uh, okay. I I'm sure in our group, someone is going to like post, oh, my God, I saw Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. Somebody in the group has seen that movie. I, I just 100% guarantee that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Sean continues. The one thing we get in this one. Unlike the others is the fact we see the sofa make faces move, run, and throw a body off a balcony. Barry, I'm telling you, when you read these reviews, you're going to want to see this movie. Wow. The button eyes on the sofa are a nice touch, giving the sofa another dimension to its creepiness. In fact, the whole sofa itself comes across as creepy and add into it, seeing it run or peek around the corners just amplifies that. One scene in particular, is one of the characters witnessing the sofa dispose of a body off said balcony, and as she backs up, she steps on a clothespin. As she looks up to see what she stepped on, and then she looks up, the sofa is staring at her, words I thought I would never type. Two of the characters manage to stick out, one of being the grandfather and the other being a YouTube vlogger educating people on different aspects of demonology. Outside that, the rest are pretty interchangeable and don't leave any lasting impressions well besides the creepy guy who bangs a woman's bra and hat that's by the way oh, that's accurate right. there's a scene where he lays the woman's hat and bra down uh and then he begins to uh uh pleasure himself on the mattress uh with okay. those objects yeah, it's 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 a good film uh, yeah. for a low budget film the production value is pretty good and the movie can pass for something to be shown in theaters now for the not-so-good stuff. I don't know if this film has really bad comedy that doesn't translate or if it's actual serious film that has some terrible scenes that seem kind of funny and how bad they are. As characters talk, I find myself wanting to laugh at how terrible something sounds, but then realize they aren't trying to be funny. The acting outside a few actors is downright bad. Nobody really shows emotion outside the guy breaking in and deciding to sexually assault some clothes. Again, words... You never think <laughs> I like that. Yes. The random subplot of the cop's <laughs> wife leaving him just feels shoehorned in. By the way, the, the cops in this movie are Detectives Grape and Detective Gravy. I'm not even kidding. That's their names. I just I, I don't know if that was like an inside joke by the guy that wrote the script or what, but I just found that hilarious. I watched this movie twice. Shout out to you, Sean, for being a true player. I felt like a law. I lost interest the first time and started fiddling around. Well, Sean, what you do on your own personal time. <clears throat> so anyway, so wanting to give an honest review, I subjected myself to a second time. I'm not going to say it's anywhere close to a good film, but it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It has some decent scenes, okay gore, but any scenes that don't feature the sofa are meh at best. Sean Ryan, thank you very much, Sean, for that. So, uh, Barry, does Sean review, is review, does it make you an any moment want to watch this film? 
Well, it did. You've got a guy that is banging clothes in a hat. I, I want to see that. <laughs> what What scares me about the film is when you say that the acting is 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 so bad. And I think with Velocipaster, that was part of my issue why I was bailing out was because the acting was bad, which really makes you wonder. There are so many decent actors out there that will never get a break, never have a shot, would love, would probably work for scale, you know, whatever the legal limit is, just to be on, and they're probably good actors. Why do we have to cast bad actors in these movies? A good actor, the truth is, a good actor would have made this movie probably a lot better based off that review. Well, I can tell you, Mr. Judgmental, that I believe this film is set in New Zealand. Ah, and that was part of the production. So uh, I don't know how many great actors are out there in New Zealand. Shout out to our listeners in Auckland, by the way. But um, that might explain why, you know, there's nobody in this cast that you go, oh, yeah, I know that guy, you know. Right. Uh, Anyway, the next review from Billy Enix, uh, he says, as requested, I watched the movie Killer Sofa tonight. Before watching the movie, I did a little homework through IMDb. See? Always going to IMDb is a good thing. So if we, if Billy had never done that before, but now he's learned about IMDb, shout out to you for that, Billy. From the title, I surmised that it was a horror movie and a B movie at that. The IMDb review pretty much confirmed this. I looked at some IMDb features such as trivia and parents. Look at this guy doing research, Barry. But I avoided the user reviews so I wouldn't prejudice myself based on others' opinions. After watching the movie... I plan to review some of those as well, just to compare my thoughts to others. What I liked, well, not much, to be honest. The female lead was pretty hot, and the movie was relatively short, about an hour and 20 minutes, which is a real plus, considering that I knew I was reviewing a, quote, bad movie, unquote. If it was two hours or more, I doubt I would have been able to sit through it. The movie had a foreign feel to it, though it didn't appear to be dubbed, but that is more of an observation more than a dislike or a like. One thing that I didn't like about the movie was the bad continuity errors. Excellent use of the word continuity, by the way, Barry. Yes. While these can be fun sometimes, particularly in watching a movie based on historical facts, that was not the case here. They were so glaring that they took away from the movie some for me. In one case, while the delivery guy slash rabbi was having a vision of a dream about the spirit after touching the chair, you see him waking up from the dream to the other guy doing chest compressions on him. In one frame, the guy is doing the compressions, and in the next, he was halfway to his feet. Later, when the female lead was at the police station and the inspector was calling her friend and telling her that she needed her help, you could see both girls in the background hugging while he was making the call. The off-screen killings can be great in some movies, but they kind of took away from this movie. It seemed that when they thought they had figured out what had happened and that the guy had been hiding in the chair, spoiler alert, This made the chair attacks make less sense, but I guess it made more sense when it was determined that he was already dead. Then you see the two spirits take over the other two people, and the other girl sees this and seems to understand what has happened, but they just drive off and the movie is over, so there is no real payoff to the movie. You know the heel is getting his comeuppance, or the face losing in the form of the last girl getting eliminated before they drove off. Hey, uh, by the way... Uh, excellent use of the wrestling analogy. Uh, it's always appreciated. So the spirits take over the new bodies, and the other girl seems to know, but nothing else comes of this. I guess that's the real problem with bad movies, which make them bad, is that the storyline doesn't have a real payoff in the end, so you walk away wondering why you just watched this. It's sort of like when uh, Kevin Nash was in the NWO, Barry. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, just my thoughts, and I hope it helps, but I'll be interested in seeing what you do with this information. 
I'm assuming some mention of the movie on the next show. Thanks, Billy. Hey, look at Billy now. He's done the review, so he's expecting a big shot. What, what you do with this information, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so let's get to the reason that this movie was picked out. It's our friend Sean McIver, post-colonoscopy, uh, giving his review and thoughts on the movie after a good, healthy dump. Barry Rose, I know you are a man, as has been said many times. Uh, shout out to our old friend, the late Joe Christie. You appreciate a good dump, am I correct? Oh, and a good dump story. Sure. sure. Exactly. So, Sean's review of Killer Sofa. As I prepared to undergo an evening of cleansing and preparation for a colonoscopy that I would have the next day, Jeff reached out to me and asked if I wanted to use the time to review a horrible horror movie. And I accepted the challenge, thinking a literally crappy night would put me in the right mindset for a crappy movie. Surprisingly, I actually enjoyed the movie. I expected another poorly made schlockfest like Velasipaster. How dare you? But instead, I got a reasonably well-made, entertaining, and not all too serious effort from the land of the Kiwis. Hey, the Kiwis. I don't know if we've ever used that expression before, Barry. It was a good use by Sean there. I mean, it's not a great film, but it's not bad either. The story is simple and perfectly ridiculous. An occult fanatic who is obsessed with a beautiful young woman named Francesca binds himself to a possessed overstuffed recliner. I didn't think I'd ever uh, use those terms uh, in our show, Barry. Yeah. So he can continue to stalk her and kill off anyone who might get between them, including her gay boyfriend, her rocker best friend, Maxie, and another guy stalking her. There's a lot going on here. I'll just say that. The murderous recliner, again, words we never thought we, the murderous recliner, Barry is opposed by the elderly, disgraced American rabbi who is an antique salesman in New Zealand, the rabbi's African-American voodoo sorceress girlfriend, the rocker's best friend, Maxie, and a police inspector who also may be obsessed with Francesca. Barry, at this point, let me stop the review. Have you now been convinced to watch the movie just based on that? I want to see what Francesca looks like, actually. Well, you've I'm, got the, yeah. the, the disgraced rabbi. You've got the the, the African-American voodoo sorceress girlfriend, the rocker best friend, uh, you know, the obsessed police inspector. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot. Oh, there's also a convenient plot exposition website that ex helps explain every single bit of the supernatural stuff going on. It's not exactly Vertigo or The Shining. But the nice thing is, oh, that's to say the least, by the way. But the nice thing is that it knows it's no Vertigo or The Shining and doesn't at all try to be. There's actually some nicely shot compositions, interesting camera angles, and a genuinely effective, scary, and creative scene involving the recliner. The script is poor with a quote-unquote twist ending. You can see almost a mile off, and the acting is mostly bad other than Jim Baltax as the Rabbi Jack, who's very good, and oh, yeah, Natalie... Yeah, hey, I love all. I've seen all his stuff. Vault axe, yeah. Vault right. <laughs> axe. Oh, he's Wait. the best. Yeah, he's your rabbi, Barry. Sounds he's very Yiddish. Jim Vault axe and sure. Natalie Morris as Maxie. Pimeo May plays with Francesca. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost done. I promise. Come on, <laughs> Francesca. I'm trying to hold it in here, Barry. You Go are. On. You are. Uh, does an okay job, but mostly gets by on being beautiful and having amazing legs. There's also that scene where she has some me time in the recliner. That's, by the way, no one had mentioned that. Yes, there is a, and you know, because you mentioned it last episode, I love discussing the, the, the stories about masturbation. There is a masturbation sequence. Oh, okay. Where Good. she's on the recliner enjoying, as, as Sean said, a little me time. Uh, that's a, a must see. Uh, the film itself doesn't look particularly low budget, other than the recliner, which is probably intentional. The poor recliner is getting a shot here. Oh, 
If there's anything to criticize besides the weak script and poor acting, it's the editing as the scenes sort of move along in a fast clip and some scenes that could do for holding a bit longer instead of ending abruptly for the next scene. The quirky humor of the film shines through, though, and really carries the movie. It's a fun and entertaining, and what more can you expect from a movie about a demonic lazy boy? Thank you, uh, Sean. Hope the shitting went well and the colonoscopy results uh, come out in your favor. Barry, I'll ask again. Have you been convinced that you want to watch the Killer Sofa movie? I, I'm convinced that I'm going to give it every opportunity. Okay, and I will, let, let me just stop here. Let, let me just stop here. You have the great Jim Baltax, as we've already mentioned. Yes. You have the guy uh, making it uh, on the mattress with the uh, the hat and the bra. Hat <laughs> the bra. Got the girl laying, <laughs> laying on top of the killer sofa, <laughs> having a little me time. You yes. know, you've got the detectives Grape and Gravy, which perhaps the greatest uh, name of a uh, of a detective duo in film history. Uh, there's a lot to like. There's a lot that's really stupid. I'll be honest, but uh, it's a fun time. Uh, if you get a chance, I'll post a link to this uh, this fine fine film, uh, at least a trailer, uh, so you folks can get a look at it. So Barry, you about ready for the uh, uh, going down the stretch to the go home? Well, it's been such a fun episode. I yeah, don't. That's know. my only reference to horse racing this week because I know right. we got a lot of positive feedback about our racing horse racing talk, Barry. What were the detectives' names in Bosch? The two. Because uh, uh, like- uh, I've been watching Bosch. Crate and Barrel. Crate and Barrel. So Grape and Gravy or Crate and Barrel. That's a I tough love it. call. Yes. Barry, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'll just say that uh, that particular detective duo during Bosch Legacy, there is an episode where they make an appearance. Yay. Yay. Nice. So on that note, for my co-host Barry Rose, I am Jeff Bowden. Some people call me the booker. Some people call me, uh, you know, the... Uh, the anti-Semitic host of this co- of this show, like Barry Rose just did, uh, and our producer, the sweet man, Lewis Kippelman. I will mention that Breaking Fable with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Killer Sofa, Magnum TA, action films of the 80s. We had a little bit of everything this week. And until next week, Lewis, take us home, my friend.